Alaikum. This is Dr. Amina Aldean for Maidan Podcast and also for the Black American Muslim Internationalism Project, which Maidan is hosting. This morning, and believe it or not, it's morning, we're going to talk with Okolo Rashid, who is a dynamic woman, African-American, running, uh, well, let's say co-founded a museum in all places of Jackson, Mississippi. And I've been down there, and the museum has just grown by leaps and bounds since I was there. And I want to talk a little bit this morning about her, who she is, the family, the transition to Islam is Women's History Month uh, 2023. So I want to get it all in before I go to talking about the impetus for founding this beautiful and wonderful museum. Salaamu Alaikum, Okolo. Well, alaikum assalam. Amina, how are you? <laughs> uh, it's, it's allergy season. So <laughs> oh, if you hear me wheezing, that's what's going on. Okay, so tell us about you and your family. Well, again, uh, my name, of course, Okola Rashid. I always introduce myself as a daughter of sharecroppers born in Mississippi. I've been married to my wonderful husband uh, for 47 years. We've been together for 57 years. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, we've been knowing each other for probably uh, 60 something years, ever since I was like the fifth grade. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So we lived in the neighborhood together, you know, when we when we moved from the rural, rural Mississippi, you know, Mississippi Delta, and then we lived in other parts of, of Mississippi to Jackson. So I've been knowing him since I was about the fifth grade. Uh, and so we we started dating uh, before we were Muslims. And once we embraced Islam, we actually got married. Uh, yeah, we been, yeah, we believe, you know, we, we, we tried to embrace these ideas. Uh, and so I'm you know, uh, have uh, four wonderful children. <laughs> they're all uh, they they're all grown and have their own lives and children. I have eleven grands and two great grands. Oh my goodness! Yeah. How 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 about this? Three generations growing in that house down there. <laughs> yeah. No, I met your husband and he is indeed wonderful. Uh, um, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I remember him taking me out to get some of that wonderful food down there in what looked like a boat shack, but whatever it was, it was good. <laughs> wonderful. So tell me about the impetus. What made you and your partner, who you can talk about, decide you wanted to do a museum? And then how did you decide what kind? Okay, well, um, the way that this all happened was that, you know, my husband and I, uh, we we came out of the African nationalist movement, a black nationalist movement. My husband was, uh, uh, I guess you can consider him uh, an activist student. He was one of the activist students uh, that came out of a very uh, 
famous and honored high school called Lanier High School. Many of those students walked out, you know, during the you know, the 60s, and uh, he was one of those. He marched with Megger Evers and so forth. So we, we came into Islam after having been, uh, been really active uh, probably ever since we were, you know, teenagers. So uh, we embraced Islam. I was 28 uh, and he was 29. We actually did not embrace it just looking at the religion side of it, but yeah. because, yeah, because we were so, you know, uh, involved in the, in the, in the struggle, you know, the African-American struggle, right. we were looking for some, uh, an idea, uh, um, a movement that could support our beliefs, our faith, you know, beliefs. And I think it was this whole idea of uh, we embrace Islam after being what we call ourselves students of Malcolm. <laughs> uh, we embrace Islam when Imam Warzadeen Muhammad uh, came into office. We've been reading and studying, you know, the Nation of Islam and other Black movements, the Communist movement, the Socialist movement and all of that. But uh, when Imam Muhammad came into office and uh he, um, uh, you know, established this uh, Orthodox Islam, universal Islam, this idea of one God, one humanity, and so forth. So those ideas really resonated with us, and we saw it as a way of furthering the struggle, also bringing, you know, uh, our faith with us and our values. So that's kind of what led us into Islam, and we were serious students. <laughs> we came into the masjid as activists changing things because they, they still had the hangover of the nation of Islam. And we got, uh, got involved and kind of, you know, struggled with those people, you know, that were in the, in within our masjid to change it, to be more reflective of this universal idea of Islam. We consider ourselves as having made a real significant uh, contributions because, you know, there were uh, students at Jackson state, uh, we, you know, our master was right near Jackson State University. So there were uh, students from the diverse community coming to the master on Friday. There were doctors, you know, uh, from the diverse community coming to the master on Friday, but they were just walking right out of the door. And so, <laughs> and, and we were just having a separate community. So my husband and I decided, well, wow, we're just letting great human and, you know, other kinds of resources just leave our community. Let's try to work to engage them. And so, right, right. yeah, so that's how we got got involved. We, we, we really consider ourselves as really uh, being successful, even though we still have our challenges. We're having some real challenges now of establishing a, a real um, practical diverse umet here in, in, in Jackson, Mississippi, even though we're having our challenges, but we really... Well, when you say that you have a diversity of population, who is in Jackson, Mississippi? You know, because oh. those of us who don't live down there, the only thing we know about Jackson is it's a majority African-American city and that they have serious water problems. And now that the white folks down there trying to take over everything. That's all we hear on the news. We don't hear about any diversity. People watch the documentary that the football player did with the football team, but that's all we know. 
Okay, well, that's a that's uh, that's straight talk. Thanks for bringing that forward. Well, actually, you would be surprised that there are a broad sector of the Muslim community that's represented here in Jackson. We probably have about at least fifteen plus different cultural groups, you know, in our community. You know, we're working as doctors at the university because yeah. you know we have a leading uh, medical university here. They've done some some first kinds of things, like I think first, I don't know, is a heart transplant or something like that was done here in Mississippi. Then we have professors at, at the university. We have students at the various universities here and colleges. So uh, so that's what we went after, you know, those that were coming to the masjid and praying on Friday. And so I guess if I bring you all the way up to today, <laughs> the first of the year, uh, we've been, uh, you know, since George Floyd, you know, that horrific, I call it, you know, the George Floyd phenomena is what I call it, you know, mm-hmm. where we had that horrific murder of George Floyd on TV that uh, spurred, uh, really, um, I guess, recatalyzed our movement. We started thinking about, you know, what else can we do? We've got to do something different because this, what, whatever we're doing, whatever we're doing across the globe is not working, right? Uh, and so that led us to start to develop a program. And it basically was my brainchild kind of look at what else we can do. And so we, we started to reflect on what Dr. King talked about, the disease that, that's within the American spirit. And uh, the only way that we were going to rid ourselves of it is that we had to, as a nation, come to understand that we have to have a radical, a radical revolution of values and a restructuring of society. So I started looking back at that, but also I was looking, I looked at something that Imam Wasidin Muhammad said, and he talked about the fact that uh, during the 60s that we actually lost our freedom struggle, right? It was infiltrated by our own government, you know, and other kinds of things that happened. And so he came up with this concept and I started studying it. And so I developed out of that, this concept is that we wanted civil rights, we wanted equal rights as African-Americans, but we also wanted inner dignity, right? Uh, We wanted that back. And so he talked about the fact that Dr. Martin Luther King probably was one of the foremost leaders that represented you know, the civil rights movement in that era, right? But but Elijah Muhammad uh, really uh, had to be recognized for the one that really put this whole idea of uh, we are are human beings, you know, and the dignity of the human being. And so he said that those two men represented the extreme poles of what we wanted in America. So Mm -hmm. from that, we've developed a new way of looking at uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, beloved community. As we study Dr. King and study his transformation, you know, before he left this earth, the last couple of years, he was talking about what what a radical revolution of values looked like. He talked about it's going beyond race, going beyond class, to embrace each other as one brotherhood out of love for one another, going beyond our national borders. So what we came to conclude in in my writing, my my concept paper, is that, wow, this is what we call a universal, pluralistic, prophetic concept. That's, that's, That's a social term that I came up with. A universal, pluralistic, prophetic concept that really goes back to the prophet Muhammad. So mm-hmm. our position is that in, in, in fact, 
what he was talking about in terms of the beloved community was the, was the community that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, established. So what we've begun to say is that, okay, these two movements actually were parallel movements that represented one freedom struggle in America. And they actually eventually converged with Dr. Martin Luther King's transformation, Malcolm's transformation that Imam Muhammad really extended that transformative positioning that uh, Malcolm had. So we're saying that we're not going to get to the beloved community until we recognize the contributions that the African-American Muslim makes, right, in the whole freedom movement. And so we we said, uh, our thing is, uh, we were able to get the mayor of the city of Jackson and the uh, seven city councilmen across the whole city to approve a resolution that we put before the city council and the mayor to establish a city of Jackson beloved community. So that's really where our work is now, is really creating what we call dynamic interfaith and broad-based partnerships to build or create this beloved community that Dr. King and others, which include the African-American Muslims, really aspire to. And it really represents just the beloved, there's only one beloved community. And that was the same community that Prophet Muhammad established. Wonderful. The museum has houses, several exhibitions. So while we are not doing pictures, of course, I want to give the listeners, could you give them the link? I mean, just verbally, the link so that they can go online and look at some of the stuff that is in there. That, I mean, it's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's muslimmuseum.org. We are America's first Muslim museum, so we were able to have that that name, muslimmuseum.org. If you go to muslimmuseum.org, you will come to the International Museum of Muslim Cultures. You can go on our website and see all of the various different exhibitions. Right now, we have two major, which we call our signature exhibitions. One is the Legacy of Timbuktu, Wonders of the Written Word. Uh, it's well, about- wait a Let's go back. Let's go back. Don't motor us on through. Why did you decide on Timbuktu? Well, uh, actually, our very first exhibition was Islamic Moorish Spain. We wanted to, we had that double name because we wanted people to understand the Moors, right? And so that was our first exhibition. And so when we opened the museum, we opened with that exhibition. Uh, And we opened April 1st, 2001. And so we know that a 9-11 happened September. Right. right? (laughs) So we thought we were going to have to close the museum up because, you know, we had vandalism, we had a brick uh, thrown in our window. But what happened is that the interface community, because they had started engaging with us, uh, with the museum, the academic community, the first African-American mayor of the city of Jackson, they began to support the museum and the, and the mayor actually had a fundraiser. So we were able to, yeah, he, he uh, and, and the governor, the former governor was, was the guest speaker, uh, Ray, oh, Mavis, uh, yeah, governor Ray Mavis, yeah, oh yeah. So they really, so what we say is they embrace 
us. They embraced the Muslim. They embraced the work that we were doing. And so their thought was that you can't close it. This is a time that we really need it, right? Right. right. So, so from that, it was like, okay, so what are we going to do next? Because we were just thinking about just having right. that one exhibit. And so what we, we, my husband and I, we had, you know, gone down to Natchez. So we knew about the story of Abdul Rahman Ibrahim, Prince Among Slaves. And so we knew of a bit about, you know, the African enslaved Muslims that were brought here. So we were able to, you know, convince our board to look at doing an exhibition on Islam in Africa. But we hadn't, mm-hmm. we hadn't had the opportunity to go to Timbuktu. But right when we, you know, chose to do that, a lot yeah. opened up an opportunity for us to go to Timbuktu within, you know, a few months or so after we had decided that. And so wow. we were, so yeah, that's what happened. We went to Timbuktu. We wanted to see the manuscript. We had heard about the manuscript. So that's why we right. wanted to go. So we met Abdul Carter, who is our partner. His family has the largest collection of ancient manuscripts uh, in the area, in the region. And we negotiated a partnership with him. That was in the year of 2004. Uh, it was December 2004. And we stayed until January 2005. And we negotiated the partnership. In 2005, he brought a limited exhibition of about seven manuscripts over. We you know, displayed them featuring these major legacy of Timbuktu exhibition that was coming up in 2006. So we opened our Timbuktu exhibition in 2006, November, and it took Jackson and really the whole country by storm because nobody was talking about these manuscripts. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You actually brought the manuscripts back from Timbuktu? We didn't bring them back the first time we met him, but Um, we negotiated with him and he came maybe two or three months later and brought seven of the manuscripts well, with him. How, how does one preserve these? I mean, I mean, it's not like I well, I can put it in my briefcase and just take it with me. How does one preserve and transport manuscripts? Well, now you know they have been having this conservation project and initiative that's been going on before we went over there, mm-hmm. and so the ones that we have are those that they preserved there's various different kinds of treatment for conservation. And so those are the ones that we have. So initially, like I said, we just had a limited exhibition of seven. And so we began to promote it for a whole year and a half. And then we went back over in 2006 and we got all of the artifacts that you see in the Timbuktu exhibit. But he our partner brought the remaining of the manuscript. We never, we weren't able, you know, we would, they were going to give the manuscripts to us for us to bring them, travel them. But he did, our partner, who has, uh, they're all from the Mama Hydra Memorial Library. We were fortunate working with your partner, Abdul Malik Mujahi. He actually hosted us there in Chicago. We brought manuscripts there for, yeah. for a limited exhibition. Yeah, so he's been supportive of the museum. He's a great partner. Well, because I know people don't really understand what it means to even think about manuscripts. And that is, you know, it's so very important that that folk get an eye. So you you set up this connection. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
you have this partnership. I do want to say uh, you're you're correct. I mean, you were going to ask me a question, but I wanted, if you don't mind, before you go to that, I wanted yeah. to speak to what you just said about the, the significance of the manuscripts. Right. It's not just about a few, you know, old ancient books, but it's about the literate culture, all of its social and economic life. <laughs> Right. Revealed in those books. And uh, one of the things that our partners, you know, those that are working on, on conservation and doing the research. And now, of course, Ford, Ford Foundation did a major study, you know, around the manuscripts. And they, you, you, you probably can go on their website. I've not gone on their website, but I do know of the, the consultant that they hired to write the story. So we have the story. So what they're saying is that these manuscripts and what they reveal about the scholarly culture and the great wealth and empire building of West Africa is evidence enough for the rewriting right. of Africa's history and its uh, and, and the contributions of Islam. You know, Islam, uh, we call it Islamic Africa, because when we were in the movement before we embraced Islam, we right. knew all about Africa, but there was nothing about Islam. You know, these great kingdoms, we know about the great Malian kingdom. Exactly. Uh, exactly. They did not, the scholars were not saying that these were Islamic kingdoms. Right. <laughs> right? And so that's what, so the, the, the Ghanaian, the first, uh, the Islam was over there from the ninth century on. <laughs> so the Ghanaian, the first great major empire, Ghana, then there was um, Mali. And Songhai, and these empires were larger than the Roman Empire. <laughs> right. But larger than the Roman Empire. It's critically important. We're not going to move forward as African Americans until we reconnect with the, that root, those roots, reconnect with that history, and build on that history. We can't just, you know, uh, a, a people without a, without their history. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're like a tree without roots. Right. Tell me about. It. But it's also, we've been given an inaccurate history. Exactly. And and that is one of the things that the museum and you all of you all's hard work moves to correct. So you started with the Moors. You got a fabulous trip to Timbuktu. What else is there? You talked about the written word. Well... That was fabulous, as you say. It was unbelievable. I think our other exhibition that we just premiered in 2019, in June of 2019, mm. it's just as significant. They, they have their various different ways of uh, recounting or, or giving us a, a, a bit of you know untold history. That's why I say we have these two, we call them our signature exhibition, the Legacy of Timbuktu Signature Exhibition. You know, nobody had these manuscripts. We were the first one. Now you can go online and you just see everything about Timbuktu in the manuscripts. But before, nothing was being said, right? No, so we really, uh, right. Uh, actually, uh, journalists, when they interviewed us, they they say that we pulled a curatorial coup on the museum community. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, these inexperienced people, right? But but the other thing, the other exhibition that we premiered in 2019 is called Muslims with Christians and Jews, an exhibition of covenants and coexistence. That exhibition is phenomenal 
Walk us through. Okay, well, that exhibition is about covenants, these peace agreements that Prophet Muhammad made, the first constitution in history, you know, the Medina Constitution is called, it's a covenant, really. It's a covenant that was made with the Jewish community, right, when when the Prophet Muhammad escaped and went to Medina. Uh, So we have a copy, and you can find a copy. That's not as as difficult to find, that first constitution. But we have Dr. John Morrow. Uh, that's his, you know, academic name, but his, his uh, Islamic name is Ilyas Islam. He is the one that went to the Middle East, scouring their libraries and finding these covenants that had been preserved that really represented another aspect of Islam that he says that we had forgotten. Muslims had forgotten, mm. forgotten the significance of these peace treaties and they're called peace treaties or covenants that really helps to tell the story of prophet muhammad not just being a prophet of god but that's huge and and, and significant but also he was a respected head of states right exactly and that's what these covenants talk about it shows and we we have scholars that are doing this study right is Mm -hmm. that it shows that that's why jefferson and some of our founding fathers had Qurans. Right. And they, the scholars are saying they knew, of course, about these covenants, these treaties that the Prophet Muhammad made with the various different, started with the Jewish community, then later with Christians, and then even non-religious people he made treaties with, and it outlines the but language. It's just statesmanship. Yes. You, know, you realize that you have to bring the various aspects of the whole community together, you know, in ways so that they're not fighting, which I wish people would exactly. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's what it that's what it speaks to. It speaks to the fact that there's this author, I don't I don't have him readily available, but uh he wrote about the Prophet Muhammad. This is a uh a Caucasian scholar. He's well respected. I can't think of his name right now, but he wrote about the Prophet Muhammad the man of peace in the midst of a world at war. Well, well we need to get that for today. <laughs> okay, I'll have, to send, I'll have to send you that. But yeah, he talks about uh, how it was that Prophet Muhammad was able, in the midst of these wars, these the great wars that was being fought, but he was promoting peace at that time. And he talked about how significant it was. And so it's a lot of, it's a lot of research out there but it's not being gathered and presented in a way that you know people are able to understand it and be and are able to appreciate the preponderance of mm-hmm. you know the material and the impact the impact that it that it had during that particular period of time. But a big part of what we seek to do is we we call the, the museum as a historical mobilizer. That's what that's what Kellogg Foundation has embraced our language. Uh, one of our scholars gave us that language is that uh, he, he talked about the fact that our museum kind of goes outside of, you know, what traditional museums do, that we, we really represent a space or an environment that he calls a, a historical mobilizer, that we use history to mobilize the community and to engage in what he called very robust, you know, kinds of programming and ways of impacting our visitors where they are. 
looking at contemporary times, things that they can utilize for today. That's that's a big part of the underpinning of the work that we do. Uh, that's why we were able to move into everything that we've been doing through the museum into what, you know, this this beloved community, we call it probably one of the foremost social justice efforts. <laughs> uh, no, it uh, actually is. And I want to encourage people. Everybody wants to make a trip and look at what's out there. Uh, go to Jackson, Mississippi. You know, don't let the mosquitoes bite, but go to Jackson, Mississippi. Check out this beautiful, and I mean beautiful, museum. Look at it online at MuslimMuseum.org. As we're wrapping this up, what do you want us to know? The, I mean, you win uh, awards down there. Oh, you yeah. The officials in a city. I mean, you're doing what our prophet did, actually. You're getting people and uh, they control the city on your side. You're getting them to support the museum. Everything humanly possible and bringing us back to some history. Many of us probably didn't know. What do you want to leave yeah. with? I think one thing to, to remember is that the work of the museum, we see ourselves as a platform for engaging the Muslims, <laughs> first of all, engaging the Muslims in a way to present Islam so that we are able to utilize the values, the principles, those things that Islam teach us in these contemporary times. We need answers today. And we feel that that's how we've been evolving the work in the museum. And that's why we think that we've come to now the most critical issue that we have to address right now is this whole idea of what I, we call it a reckoning, <laughs> this global reckoning that's taking place as it relates to uh, equity and justice. The world is probably, you know, Imam Muhammad, you know, the scholar that I keep uh, referencing, he calls it the day of religion. We're living right now in the day of religion and Yom Din. He said uh, a lot of people call it day of judgment, but he said really, and of course, uh, us that know Arabic, we can relate to that. The word Yom Din really is day of religion. <laughs> and so, and, and if you look that up, it's like the day of the death. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. So it's like a conclusion of things. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I really, truly believe that George Floyd, you know, all these signs, a lot talks about the signs, right? That we're right. going to see. And so uh, we feel that, I mean, I, I mean, I'm going on and on. I can go on and on. I'm going to make this point and then I'm going to stop, really. The reason why I came to see the George Floyd horrific murder as I call it the George Floyd phenomena, because I think that it was God peace be upon him, that, you know, we had COVID right before that happened. Right. So everybody was at home, right? They were glued to the TV. I mean, we've had murders <laughs> by police. You know, we'd had strings of murders right up to the George Floyd. But this was the first time that most people were at home, right? Across the globe, really, right? And mm -hmm. so when they saw that officer with his knee pressed against the neck of a human being right. such that he, we call it a primal scream when he called for his mother. We call it right. the primal scream, right? 
and it, we say that it shocked. It shocked the sensitivity, and it, it did something deep within the human spirit, right. such that such that millions of people flooded the streets. Right, right. All they, were, uh, the, uh, they were interracial, right? Mm-hmm. They were uh, intergenerational. Right. Uh, they were interfaith. Right. So we couldn't create that. <laughs> Right. Something, something significant, something divine had to create that. So that really fits to this thing of the day of reckoning, uh, the day of religion. And so we call it. uh, So we're in a special time. I said all of that to say that we in the world community is in a special time and it is really shaping itself for the Muslims because the division that exists, Prophet Muhammad has the only sustainable model, this the, the beloved community that we are calling it, which is the the, 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 the Ummah, you know, which was multiracial, multi-religious, multi-ethnic, right? Right? It was all of those things. And so how did he do that? How do we as Muslims gather <laughs> the research, the resources, and the practical example? <laughs> to be a real force and be at the table because these conversations are happening and, and, and there are many that are saying that there's a new world order coming in. Where are we oh, standing? Coming. Yeah. So where are we standing as Muslims? So we feel like we're this vehicle. We are this unique vehicle that goes, mm-hmm. that d- does work across race, class, generation, and religion, you know, to bring people together to understand our shared humanity. Yeah. That's our work as Muslims. So that's what I w- w- want to leave is that that's what we're doing down here in Mississippi. We think God allowed us <laughs> the opportunity because we were the most, we are the most oppressed. Yeah. We're, we're the ones that are and have been most affected by white supremacy and racism. Well, this has been and awesome doesn't cover how much information you've you've left us with, girl. And I'm just I'm I'm sitting over here taking notes, and it's it's just awesome. This is Dr. Amina Aldine, and this is a Maidan podcast that everybody needs to listen to. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. We really oh, no, appreciate you sharing our story. This is awesome, awesome.